Thank you for that singing today today and lifting our voices together to the Lord, uh, looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as, uh, as our answer. In Luke chapter 9, uh, we had the scripture reading and um, talking about, it's the title of the message today, Who Am I? Jesus asks a very important question. Uh, as we think about the introduction today, um, our world is in, in an identity crisis. Um, nobody knows really who they are, or at least is to be told. We have a generation of young people who are trying to find themselves. You heard that phrase before, finding themselves, like they're lost somewhere in the woods and um, they need to, to find um, themselves and uh, whatever that means, identity is very important. How do we identify ourselves? Do um, you remember um, years ago the, there was the who's who in America for high school students? I got one of those when I graduated from high school. For 80 years, you could get one of those certificates for being somebody in your school. There was a qualification that you had to meet. It was supposed to help you to get into college. However, the company who sold those books, the Who Who books, and gave out their certificates went bankrupt in 2007. A company was criticized publicly for making money off of proud parents. You see, we all want to be somebody, don't we? We want to to uh, advance our identity. We want to to know who we are and feel good about ourselves. We want to be on the top of the class. We want to be at the top of our work. We want to be at the top of our family. We like to move up the ladder of identity. And if you don't like who you are, then you can change who you are. Whatever you need to do to feel good about who you are. There was actually a book that I read a few years ago called The 50 People Every Christian Should Know. It's written by Warren Risby. And a fascinating book. Um, many of these names in this book that you would probably recognize. Jonathan Edwards and Fanny Crosby, who wrote many of our hymns in our hymn book. J.I. Packer, Charles Spurgeon, R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody. Just to name a few of the names that are, that are in the list of 50 people that every Christian should know. However, there are some other names that you don't I didn't know even to some extent until I read some in, in this book, just a, a, a different biography on, on these uh, gentlemen and women. Um, lady named Catherine Von Bora, someone you, you need to know. J.B. Lightfoot, Robert Murray McShane, Thomas Spurgeon, Christmas Evans, some names just to name a few that Maybe you need to be familiar with encouragement. There's another book along the same lines, 50 Women Every Christian Should Know, written by uh, Michelle de Russia. And uh, I like to read that book as well uh, down the road here. Sometimes reading about the life and identity of other people can help you with your own life and see that even though they may have lived many years ago in a different era, in a different generation, maybe even on a different continent, in a different place, and yet some of the struggles and some of the questions that they had to answer in their life, some of the obstacles that they face can help you face your obstacles. 
I'm sure there are some wonderful people and extraordinary lives that have made a great impact on the world. But there's no greater person in all the world to get to know than the person we read about every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. In fact, this book, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about him. His name is Jesus. And the question of who Jesus is comes up to the disciples in this passage. Who is he? I want to say this morning... Do you know him? Do you know Jesus today? Does he know you? Are you getting to know him better every day? You need to know him more as you grow. You see, we're not finished knowing him. You don't care how old you are. As long as there's breath in your body, you have a pursuit to know Jesus Christ. Read his book. Know who he is and what he's doing. And that will help you with your identity. Jesus tells that to the disciples. In fact, I think Paul got a hold of this. Turn over in the book of Philippians. Just to bring you the two verses or two sections of Paul along this topic of knowing Jesus. On our bulletin, our, our, um, our, our theme, our purpose for our church is to know him and to make him known. And that comes from this passage. In fact, the first verse in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, look what Paul says in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's Paul's purpose statement. For me to live is Christ. That's his goal. That's his purpose. Now look over two chapters later in Philippians chapter 3 in verse 8. He says, yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. There is his pursuit. Verse 9, that I be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already obtained, either were already perfect, But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended or to have arrived, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, don't miss this verse. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. In other words, be like-minded in this way. And if anything be otherwise minded, in other words, if anyone has any other purpose or any other agenda, God shall reveal even this unto them. In other words, God shall have a way for those who are hard-hearted that don't think this way, that think they've already arrived. They know it all. They know all there is about Jesus. They don't have anything more to learn. Paul says, when you think that way, God has a way 
of humbling you and revealing to you and teaching you that lesson. You're not all there is. There's humility of all the the believers uh, and all the apostles. Paul would have been able to say, at least from my perspective, oh, he, he's arrived. He's seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He even made it to, the, to heaven and back. What more could you ask for? And Paul says, I'm not arrived. I, I've got more to know. And as long as I'm still alive and I'm still breathing, I'm going to press toward that mark. I'm going to get to know Christ. I'm going to get to know the power of His resurrection and His suffering and fellowship with Him. You see, there's more to know. And Paul is showing this and he commands in verse 15, this is what all of us should be involved in. Getting to know Christ more. Growing in our relationship with Him. And you see, Paul admits that his desire, this desire had not always been there. He had not always thought this way. But as he got closer to the grace and the love of God, it constrained him to move closer in his knowledge with the Lord. The more he realized how much he was a sinner and how much God loved him and gave his grace, the more Paul said, I'm going to leave everything else behind. I don't have anything to offer. I need to know him more. And then Paul's purpose was that he would share that knowledge with those around him. He would be a light. As I know him more, that I would turn around and desire that others would know him more as well. I wonder today if that's truly your purpose, to know him more. And when we come to Luke chapter 9, as you turn back over to that passage, Paul is, or, or Jesus is going to teach his disciples... In this section that they've got more to learn. They've got more to to know about him. Jesus is going to take his disciples into a realm that they've not quite been before. He's going to teach them and, and grow their faith in their need to know him more and more. He's going to test them to see how much they've learned. And that they've not yet arrived. Remember, in the previous, uh, uh, earlier in the chapter, Jesus sent them out two by two to preach. They healed They cast out demons. I'm sure they came back with some big heads. Look what I did. Look how good I am. We've moved from just normal disciples like everyone else. Now we're apostles. We've arrived. In fact, we know that the disciples will argue about who will be on the right hand and on the left. They had oftentimes argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus is going to teach them what discipleship truly is about. That they've not arrived. They had been given power and authority like no one else. And now Jesus brings them off of their high horse when he fed the 5,000 to show them their utter dependence upon him. Remember, he asked them the question, you find them something to eat. And they came back and they said, Lord, all we have is five barley loaves and two fishes. That's not enough. And even if we had a whole year's worth of salary, it still wouldn't sustain the feeding of all of these people. They came empty-handed to the Savior who was teaching them a point of ultimate dependence on Him. There are three main sections in this chapter concerning the identity of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. In between some of these events that happen, like the feeding of the 5,000 
and, uh, and, and, and some other teaching that Jesus would do. This, this chapter is going to answer some of those questions about who is Jesus. Remember, in chapter 8 of Luke, when they were on the Sea of Galilee, they concluded as Jesus calmed the sea, what manner of man is this? Where did he come from? What type of man can control the winds and the waves? And in the very next story, a demon-possessed man with a legion of demons comes out, and the demons say, What have you have to do with us, thou son of the Most High God? Answer the question, Jesus' divinity. Who am I? In chapter 9, in verse 7 and 8, 7, 8, and 9, there's a question of Jesus' identity that comes up from Herod. We read that a couple Sundays ago, where Herod says, Who is this man? Maybe he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Or, or maybe he's one of, one of the prophets. Who is this guy? I need to see him. He's perplexed about his identity and wants and desires to see some miracle that he would do for him. And then Jesus talks to his disciples here in these verses about who he is. He asked them the same question that Herod was asking. Who am I? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And then interesting, in chapter 9, in verse 28 through 36, there's a section there where Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples, and then a voice calls down from heaven. And the voice of God the Father says, This is my Son. God calls down from heaven and answers the question of the identity of Jesus. In fact, later on, in chapter 9, in verse 49... There is a complaint that comes from one of the disciples, John, I believe it is the one who is identified later, that he says, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name and he's not from us. What do we do with him? You remember Jesus in that passage would say, leave him alone. So here, even in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, people who are not part of the twelve are actually casting out demons and doing miracles. And it, uh, it, it, it surrounds the identity of the name of the power of Jesus Christ. You see, this question is crucial to your life. It's crucial to Luke. It's crucial to Luke to Theophilus as he writes this gospel. Who is Jesus? What do you believe about him? What do you believe about Jesus? The question that concerning Jesus that arrives in verse 18, Jesus is the one who asks the question of the disciples. Look down in the verse as we see the question concerning Jesus. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, say. Now Luke does not record for us the location of this prayer or of this event. But Matthew in Matthew chapter 16 records this event took place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This would have been an area, a Gentile place in northern Israel, all the way up into the mountains. The highest peak of those mountains being Mount Hermon, snow-covered all year round. I was there in 2015 to my trip in Israel, and we were there at a time when it was cloudy and cold and raining in January. It was an isolated place in the northern portion of modern-day Israel on the border of Syria. Remember, we went to the border and looked over into the area where there's still a battlefield with remnants of, of vehicles and, um, and a no-man's land that is still there today, highly protected. It's oftentimes 
skirmishes that happen up there is very isolated. There's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of villages that are up in that area. That's where Jesus went, somewhere up on that ridge, the area of Caesarea Philippi, up in those mountains, and there he got alone to pray. This is the fourth time in the gospel where Luke records that Jesus got alone to pray. There will be seven times in the gospel that Luke will record that. This is the fourth. Jesus was getting alone with God. He's getting ready to reveal something very important to his disciples. And there he is praying. And notice his disciples are there with him. He models for them prayer, a prayer life, a dependence upon the Lord. And Luke gives us this small conversation, this small detailed commentary that Jesus, before he made this statement, before he asked this question, before he teaches them on discipleship, he got alone in their presence and he got down on his hands and knees and he prayed. Jesus often would do this. He modeled this for his disciples. And at some point in the prayer, Jesus stands up and walks over to the disciples, wherever they are. Maybe they're around the campfire on this isolated hill. We, we don't know. And he sits down and he says, Men, who do the people say that I am? I mean, where did this question come from? Now, Luke has already introduced that, that Herod has been asking this question. Did the disciples know that Herod was asking this question? I don't know. But Jesus knew that the disciples had been hearing comments and opinions from the people, from the crowd. And he asked this question. You see, Jesus often would ask questions. It was a good way to teach. It was a good way to learn. Ask questions to get them to think. Now, this is a time for them to start seeing the importance of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Who do others say that I am? You see, the Jewish crowds in Jerusalem and Galilee were starting to wonder about this Jesus of Nazareth. He had created a good stir. He had been healing. He'd been preaching. He had sent out his disciples. They'd just come back from this campaign in Galilee where they'd been in all of these villages. And Jesus is saying, okay, let's get together. What are the populace? What are the group? What are the villages? What are the people that you saw and you heard and you were preaching before? What are they saying about me? What are they talking about? And the answer here in this verse, as Jesus would, uh, Luke gives us, they answered and said, verse 19, John the Baptist. But some say you're Elias or Elijah. And others say that you're one of those old or ancient prophets that, have been, that has risen again. Now, as you see this, John the Baptist resurrected. That came up with Herod. That's what Herod actually thought. That he had beheaded John the Baptist and John the Baptist was coming back to haunt him. Others said that Elijah the prophet. Now, that's interesting because the Old Testament had concluded that the voice of the one in the wilderness, Elijah would come to prepare the way of the kingdom. And interesting, Elijah's one of the only ones in the Old Testament that did not die. How did he go up? He went up in a whirlwind. He went up in a chariot of fire. And the Jewish people already in the first century had realized that before the Messiah comes, before the kingdom came, that Elijah would come back in this miraculous coming. He would come back on his chariot of fire and he would come back to the Jewish people and would visit them. 
That was a, a teaching of the first century, and that is connected to this, that they possibly thought that Jesus was the coming of Elijah the prophet back from heaven. Other comments that says that he was one of the other uh, prophets from the Old Testament. Matthew actually records that they said that he was Jeremiah risen from the dead. That great prophet of lamentations. Some have indicated that Jeremiah, in fact, in 2 Maccabees, which is an intertestinal book, an apocryphal book, actually taught that Jeremiah the prophet, before the coming of the kingdom, would come back and tell Israel where the Ark of the Covenant was. Because according to one of those intertestinal books, 2 Maccabees, Jeremiah the prophet was personally responsible for hiding the Ark. That sounds like an Indiana Jones movie, doesn't it? That's basically what it was. It was just a first century uh, theory about the, the, the prophet Jeremiah hid it in some cave somewhere in Israel or Egypt and that before the kingdom would come, that Jeremiah would reveal to the nation of Israel where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was a popular view in the first century. And that may be why Jeremiah was connected here. It, maybe these were some prophets like Moses or maybe Abraham or David. Maybe one of those Old Testament prophets that he would come back. Now, if you include all of those names together, that's a pretty good list to be included on in a book. I mean, Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, maybe Moses, David, Abraham the Great. That's a pretty good list. I don't know if I would make the top 10. I don't know if I would make the top 50. I'd probably be somewhere around maybe 50,000 or something. I don't know where I would make it. I probably wouldn't even make the list at all. Neither would you. So to be in the top five, that's a pretty good list to be involved in. That's a pretty good opinion that the nation of Israel has about this Jesus carpenter of Nazareth. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel said? And yet, the greatest of the prophets is among them? You see, that's not enough. I wonder sometimes if we think that Jesus is just a good person. That maybe if we wrote a book of a bunch of people, we would put him in maybe number one or number two, but practically he's probably more like number ten on our list of just some, a good person. That's oftentimes the popular view of, uh, of some nominal Christians about Jesus, is that he was a good preacher. I mean, he healed a lot of people. He sacrificed himself. He preached the Sermon on the Mount, and that had some good morals to that. You know, he was a good preacher. He fed the poor. He, he took care of, uh, of those. He did some social things that was very good for the economy and that we should practice. Maybe sometimes we think that Jesus is just a good past hero. It's somebody that we admire. And in verse 20, Jesus goes a step further. And he said unto them, in verse 20, here's the question. This is where he's getting. He asked the first question to get them to think, to uh, to 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 make a comment about what other people are saying. But here's where Jesus wants to bring his disciples. This is his point. But whom say you that I am? Now, in the original text in the Hebrew, 
or in the Greek, the, the emphasis of the word you is used twice. But you, whom do you say that I am? Twice in this phrase, it didn't come out in the King James, but twice in this phrase, Jesus emphasizes you. This, I, don't, I, don't, I want to move closer. What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Whom do you say that I am? You see, the disciples had already asked the question, what manner of man is this, as they pondered together? They were perplexed about his identity. I mean, what kind of man can do what he does? Only God can forgive sins, and yet he forgives sins. Only God can command the winds and the waves, and yet he speaks, and the winds and waves obey. Only God can tell a legion of demons to leave, and they leave. And yet Jesus speaks, and even the principalities and the powers of this world answer. Only God has the power to raise a little girl from the dead. And Jesus walks into a room, grabs her hand, and says, Little maid, arise. The question of who Jesus was and is was going on in the minds of the disciples, and Jesus knew it. And Peter steps in as always and was the first to announce the answer. Look down at verse 20. And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Now Matthew records, turn over in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew records a fuller, more detailed answer to Peter. And a response from Jesus from what Peter says. Luke doesn't record this, but I think while we're here, it would be good to see. In verse 16 of Matthew 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, You are Christ, the Christ. But he, answer, he also says, The Son of the living God. So he goes on, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, he said, Peter, you didn't come up with this by yourself. God revealed this to you. And then in verse 18, he said, I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he charged his disciples in verse 20. So here, a little bit more in this discussion of what Jesus talks about, Simon makes this proclamation, and Jesus congratulates Peter for saying it. In fact, he says, Peter, this statement of faith that you just made, the answer to this question will be the foundation of the church that will advance the gates of hell. It will be the rallying cry. It will be the banner by which you will hold over the next 2,000 years. The church will rally behind with this faith. This banner of the identity of Christ, Son of the living God. I want to ask you this morning, do you agree with Peter? You're here today, and maybe you're just come because someone invited you today. 
You, you stop by with the church being the, on the corner and you say, I need to go to church today. And you come and you have a Bible or maybe you don't have a Bible. And here you're confronted with this question that Jesus Christ asked his disciples. Who am I? Who do you say that I am? What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? That's going to be the, the question of the age. And when you get to eternity, when you breathe your last breath, or the Lord Jesus Christ were to come back, the answer to this question is key to your, your eternity of who Jesus is. Jesus, Paul, uh, uh, Peter says, you're the son of God. You're his Christ. This word Christ is the same Hebrew word as the Mashiach or the Messiah. Christ is in the Greek. Messiah is in the Hebrew. It means the same thing. The one who is anointed by God to be the deliverer, to be the savior of the world. Interesting, in verse 21, he says this. As you look, he gives them a command. He straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no one this thing. Now that's interesting that Jesus would tell his disciples, don't tell anybody about this. Keep this a secret. And we came to this type of statement in chapter 8 and verse 56. Do you remember when the parents were in the room and he raised the little girl from the dead and he turned to the parents and he said, don't tell anyone that I just did that. And you remember that? That's an interesting thing to say. You said, you just did something. You raised someone to the dead and you don't want me to tell anybody about it? Peter just made the confession that's going to be the greatest confession of the church age, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the Messiah of God, the Anointed One, who has come to rescue man from his sin. And Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone. And he tells all the disciples, don't talk about this. Why? Well, I believe the answer is in the next verse. And, and that will help us understand. And I want you to, before I read the verse, I want you to just understand what was going on. We, we, we've talked about this before in our study of the Gospel of Luke. You see, the, the crowd's view of the Messiah was quite different than what Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming was. His first coming. The crowds of the Jewish expectation of the Messiah in the first century was solely political and self-serving. They had taken some passages of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah as being a leader who would set up a kingdom and, and overthrow the Gentile nations and, and bring a, a time of peace and prosperity and restore the nation of Israel back to its prominence. They had seen those verses and highlighted those verses and only seen the Messiah as a political and military leader. That is true. The Messiah is, is, was a, a, and prophesied as a leader who would come and deliver his nation, would, would come and overthrow the Gentile powers, would, would come and bring peace on this earth. That is true about Jesus. And Luke has given some of those prophecies about Jesus. However, that's not all. There were a group of, of, of Aseans down in an area called Qumran, who had written on a, on a group of parchments, on thousands of pieces of documents that we call today the Dead Sea Scrolls, that not during this time were being written and being hidden in the cave in the first century. And that gives us a little idea of what their, their expectation was about the Messiah. 
They viewed the Messiah as purely a deliverer who would come and and overthrow the Romans and take away their oppression. Some saw the Messiah as a political leader who would come and deliver them from the corrupt religious elite like Herod and the Sanhedrin. Some saw the Messiah as someone who would come and give them perpetual bread. In fact, in John chapter 6, turn over in John chapter 6, this is the gospel of the other direction. John chapter 6, right after Jesus fed the 5,000, notice what John records in verse 15. They're collecting up the 12 baskets of leftovers. And in John 6, verse 15... When they had gathered, in verse 13, 14, when those men, when they had came and seen the miracle, in verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they were come to take him by force, to make him a what? A king. He departed among them into a mountain himself alone. So the crowd, when they saw Jesus bringing out bread from this little lunch and feeding them fish and bread and this miracle of providing manna in the desert for them to eat, they said, that's the kind of leader we want. I mean, we don't have to work ever again. He'll give us food. He'll heal our sicknesses. He'll, he'll take away the Romans. He'll, he'll, he'll provide for us so that we can sit in our house and we can enjoy prosperity. Now, that was their only anticipation of the Messiah. They wanted him to be their king, but they wanted him to be their king on their terms. And Jesus knows that the crowd is only wanting him for their wants. They only wanted a provider of food. They only wanted a healer from their physical sicknesses. They only wanted a political and a military man to fight their battles for them. Yes, Jesus had come to fulfill all of those, but not at His first coming. None of those things mattered as long as man still owed a sin debt to God. And in verse 22, Jesus reveals the answer to why He says, this is not going to be a popular view of the Messiah. And in verse 22, Jesus says this, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and chief priests and the scribes, that's including the Sanhedrin and the religious elite, and be killed, that's the word slain, and rise again on the third day. You see, that's not going to be very popular. In fact, to the Jewish people, the suffering of the Messiah was not even interpreted in a proper fashion. When they came to places like Isaiah 53, where they saw the suffering servant of God, they did not see that as the Messiah. They reinterpreted it and said that. That was the nation of Israel in bondage to the Romans. And we need to be delivered. And it's through the stripes, our stripes, that we are going to be healed. And Isaiah 53 was a prophecy that Jesus had already said. It was of Him that would come. And this leader, this Messiah, this deliverer that Jesus was speaking of at His first coming would be a Savior who would suffer, who would be killed, who would die. And on the third day, He would rise again. 
You see, Jesus' purpose and the purpose of the Messiah was first to pay the sin debt for all of mankind. What was it that John the Baptist said as Jesus came over the hill before he was baptized? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How do you think a lamb takes sin away? He's sacrificed. So right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there was already an indication that Jesus would suffer and die. In Matthew chapter 12, before this event, Jesus had told the crowds that he himself would be like Jonah, who would be put into the belly of the well. And for three days and three nights, then he would come back. So Jesus was already prophesying, but he was doing it in parables, in illustrations. So this is the first time that Jesus comes out and says, all right, guys, come, come on in. I'm going to tell you something about this Messiah. I'm going to tell you something about who I am. You just made a statement that I am Christ. I'm the son of the living God. Here's my purpose on earth in this coming. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to give myself up to the hands of evil men, and I will die. I'll be buried, and on the third day, I'll rise again. And no wonder in Matthew chapter 16, Peter turns around and says, Lord, he rebukes him. He says, this is not going to happen. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. There's a conversation that Jesus has with Peter that Luke skips here because he's just going to run right over to to the term of discipleship. But Jesus is just told, he's just shocked his disciples, into reality. They thought Jesus was getting ready to bring a kingdom. Jesus is getting ready. to He's healing, and there's multitudes. There's people following him. He's healing sicknesses. He's raising people from the dead. He's preaching. He's bringing out manna from heaven. They had just been sent out on this tour where demons were listening to them by his power and by his authority. Now the kingdom has come. And Jesus is now talking about death. Suffering, dying on a cross or dying, and being raised again. Luke records for us that the disciples did not understand this statement until after Jesus resurrected. Look to the last chapter in the book of Luke. Go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 in verse 44. The last few verses... And this is where Jesus is already resurrected. He's meeting with his disciples. He's talking to them. He gave them, in fact, he's in Galilee. He boiled some fish for them after they were fishing. And he came to them in verse 43, and he took it, and he did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke to you when I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of the prophets and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that that might understand the scripture. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are, my, are, you are witnesses of these things." So Jesus has just brought the disciples down to earth to help them to understand his ultimate purpose. That he came to this world, he was born, he is going to live this life in just a matter of days, he will go into Jerusalem and he'll die. 
No wonder by the time you get to John chapter 14, their hearts are troubled. They don't want to see Jesus leave. They were until he just got there. They just realized he's the Messiah. He has a job for them to do, and that's why he goes into the next section here, the cost of discipleship in verse 23 through 27. Jesus then goes immediately from his suffering, from his persecution and his passion week and his resurrection to now what it means to be a disciple. And he said unto them all, look at verse 23, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, And follow me. Jesus went a step further in helping these men to understand what it means to grow as a disciple. Not only will Jesus take a cross and suffer and die, but these apostles, his followers, his disciples will also take up their own crosses and follow the Lord. Jesus is revealing to them their future and their commitment, their cost of their commitment to follow him. He's not only giving his future, but now he's revealing to them their future. This is what it's going to mean for you to be a disciple of mine. Now remember, this is the discipleship, not salvation. Sometimes this text is used to cause believers to doubt their salvation. If you, if you, in other words, if you're not willing to take up your cross, then you're not saved. If you're ashamed of Jesus, then you've lost your salvation. Jesus is talking to believers here. Now there is Judas that's in this crowd. But Jesus is talking about the cost of being a disciple, especially these apostles. You see, they will lead the way in suffering for Jesus. They will be the first to follow in his footsteps. This is talking about believers who are willing to grow in the fellowship of his suffering. Climbing the ladder to maturity means carrying a cross. Think about this. The crowds wanted Jesus to be their king. The disciples are seeing demons cast out, healings happening, storms running in fear, people being raised from the dead. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is on earth. The Messiah is here. And then Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, be killed, buried, and rise again. And oh, by the way, you're going to suffer and take a cross too. How confused do you think they are? We can't be too hard on them. They've never read the book of Philippians. They don't have the book of Romans. They don't know who Timothy and Titus are. They don't have the book of Revelation. They don't have the fuller scriptures like we do. And they're growing in this in a different fashion, in some ways like we grow in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus is saying to be my disciple, you you must understand what it means. You have to make a decision. And he gives him three. And I wish I had time to go into the detail of these three. These are the message in and of themselves. But can I just mention to them in closing today, Jesus gives him three commands, three decisions that they must make. Number one, they must deny himself. Deny himself. Number two, they must take up their cross daily And number three, they must follow him. 
Interesting, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus will give these commands to these disciples, helping them to understand what it means to be a disciple, what it means to grow in their walk and in their faith with the Lord. I want to ask you this morning in closing, do you know who Jesus is? You may know facts about Him. You may have read Him like a biography and said, oh yeah, I know what He's done. I'm talking about, what do you believe about Him? Is He your Savior? Is He the one that has come, suffered, bled, and died for your sins and has purchased your redemption? And you believe that wholeheartedly. You put your faith that He is the Messiah. You trust that. I want to ask you as a believer, are you knowing Him more and more every day? That's why it's important for us to, to realize the Scripture, to make it a passion on a daily basis that we've not arrived but we're continuing to pursue the knowledge of Him. And maybe this week, you stopped. You took a break. You went on vacation. I went on vacation. Not for my walk with the Lord. but for my time of reading God's Word. Because until we breathe our last breath, we have to pursue this one thing I do, Paul says. Forget those things which are behind And I pursue knowing Him more and more. Have you lost that desire? There are believers, there are disciples who get distracted. And they lose their pursuit of knowing Christ because they're too busy making their own identity. Finding their own way. Looking for for happiness and blessing in other things. And that's what Jesus is talking about in these verses about the pursuit of discipleship, what it cost to follow Him. Father, I pray as we close this morning, to be Your disciple means saying no to ourselves, means saying yes to a cross, and means a faithfulness to continue to pursue following after You, no matter where that leads. And maybe there's some time that we need to take with those three issues in our lives of what it means to pursue Christ. Lord, if there's someone here today that's struggling, they see Jesus as just a good man or a good prophet, maybe even a miraculous type prophet like Elijah or Moses or, or Jeremiah raised from the dead. But Lord, they have to come to the realization that Jesus is God in flesh, who's perfect, who laid down his life and is the only one that can forgive them of their sins. And until they agree with Christ on who he is and trust him and him alone, what profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his own soul? Lord, this morning as we close the service, I'm sure there have been some disciples this week that have got distracted and stopped in their pursuit of knowing you more. They've lost that. Maybe they've gotten hard-headed or just distracted. If, if they are truly a child and a son of God, you will chasten them and you will scourge them and bring them back into that pursuit of you. And I, I asked this morning that they would be convicted about their walk As Peter said, grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ? Would that be our pursuit this week? In Jesus' name we pray. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand please? I don't want to prolong the service much more, but I do want to take an opportunity for an invitation just to play. And as the ladies play a hymn, just a moment, we won't sing, but as God is speaking to you this morning, it's it's far better for you to be honest with God in your walk with the Lord than to walk an aisle and say some words or, or impress you know, people by some kind of action. Your heart, your commitment, your love, your passion to the Lord. He knows, he knows who you are. He knows your weakness. He knows what's distracted you. just a moment of quiet before we close the service and leave and go home. Would you make a commitment this week to get your Bible out, dust it off, get back into the Word of God knowing Christ more sharing Him with others around you, being obedient. Dear Heavenly Father, as we close the service today, uh, thank you for asking us the hard questions. Uh, Lord, for bringing us to ourself and what it means to actually be a disciple of Christ. And Lord, I pray that uh, we, like Peter, would be strong in our faith and in our resolve and our commitment of who you are and constantly grow, would you forgive us when we are in other ways like Peter in self-serving and um, thinking about our own agenda and what's best for us, our own terms. And uh, Lord, when you, when you have a, a cross for us to bear and a road for us to take that is different than what we thought, would we have the obedience and the faith and the commitment enough to follow you no matter where that takes us. If that means suffering on the mission field or suffering in Huntsville for the name of Christ, would we be willing to do that, to stand up for what we believe in and be a disciple of Christ and continue to follow you unashamedly? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.